All right, let's go ahead and take our seats. Ian's going to be preaching from Matthew 16 as he will share, so you can be turning in your Bibles to Matthew 16 as I introduce him. As you can tell, Ian is a, des- a descendant of the Nephilim <laughs> in the Bible. The godly part of that line. Uh, Ian serves as a president of Trinity Fellowship Churches. And in some ways, his, his more significant role is he leads our church development committee, which is the, the committee in our denomination tasked with helping elders and churches to thrive and to grow. And so he travels significantly as an extension of that responsibility. He goes to conferences discussing Trinity Fellowship Churches, inviting interested elders to, to consider Trinity as a, as a home for them, as a connectional home for them. Represents us well. In fact, he was here this week. On Friday, we had a, a luncheon here at Cornerstone for elders in the, in the area who are possibly interested in Trinity Fellowship Churches. It's great to see Ian uh, as he had been clearly building relationships in those men for years, some of them. Um, and that was, it was an encouraging time. You know, we don't know what the long-term fruit is going to be of that meeting, but it was encouraging to see that there is, there is some interest in Trinity. Right now, he's in San Jose, outside of San Francisco, helping to plant Redeemer Church of San Jose with Bob Bixby. He's been out there for, I don't know, a year and a half, year and a half, and probably will be out there for at least another year and a half. And that's, that's a, it's actually a Trinity work. It's a Trinity church that they are planting. So we are extremely encouraged by that. Uh, so that extends our reach coast to coast in Trinity. So we might only be 10 churches, but we go coast to coast. <laughs> and so we're proud of that. But his, um, his, Gifting and leadership is very evident just as he walks through that situation out, out west. He's very smart, as you'll hear. He's got a very contagious leadership. He's a very devoted friend. He's committed to people uh, that, he, that God brings into his life. He's very committed to them as friends, loves his family deeply, has a good, great theological mind, as you'll hear, significant preaching gift. So it's, it's just always a joy to have Ian with us. So not his first time preaching at our church and certainly won't be the last, but thank you, brother, for preaching the word of God to us. That was meaningful. Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. And even though I am no longer in Philadelphia, I still want to say to you, how you doing? Because you know what? In California, the what's real, bruh, it just isn't my thing. I just, the, the what's real, bruh, just doesn't work. I still keep the how you doing going. And you... You follow that pretty well. It it honestly is an absolute joy and honor to be here with you this morning, not just in general, because I do love this church. I love your pastors. I love your former previous pastors, Phil and Jim. I, I love this church, but I'm honored to be here this morning because of the moment we've just recognized the moment we just recognized, I I would categorize as a holy and a happy moment a holy and a happy moment, and a good way to describe why it's a holy and a happy moment is, is how, how Will opened us up with the call to worship. Today is a day to celebrate God's faithful care of his church. You don't need to be reminded again, but this is what pastors do. They remind you of things again. God has been faithful to you. God has been faithful to Cornerstone Church. He's raised up this church. He is 
building this church. He is strengthening this church. He is caring for this church. And one of the primary ways that God ensures that his church is cared for is by raising up, calling, and gifting God-appointed leaders. And so we celebrate this holy and happy moment this morning because today is a day where we're remembering that God in his love for you, God in his care for you, God in his commitment to you, in Christ Jesus has raised up yet another under-shepherd to care for your souls. This is a holy and happy moment, wouldn't you agree? And so as I've been given the honor of preaching God's word this morning, um, as I've prayed, as I've planned, I thought it would be helpful to, to, to push that thought in a little further and remind you that what you are experiencing today as a local church is a contextualized expression of Christ's unstoppable mission to build his church until he returns and makes all things new. And so with that in view, would you go now to Matthew chapter 16, and I would like to read for you verses 13 through 21 and direct your attention to Christ's unstoppable mission. Let us hear the word of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That is God's word. May he add his blessing to its reading and preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen? As a young father, I was determined to transfer a number of my passions to my children. First and foremost, as you can imagine, as a Christian man, my greatest passion was to, to, to use my time, to use my efforts, to use my moments with my children to transfer them a passion for Jesus Christ. After that, Philadelphia sports. 
And then after that, I had this, this, this desire for, for my children to have similar experiences that I had when I was a kid. And our parents weren't really good at taking pictures of us six boys. I'm the oldest of six boys. But we have these Polaroid photos floating around every once in a while. And it seems like almost every other photo that I see of myself as a kid, I'm wearing superhero pajamas. And so I wanted my boys to wear superhero pajamas. And so as our kids were growing up, we would get them different superhero pajamas. And I still remember my favorite set of Superman pajamas that my boys wear. It was the Superman set of pajamas that had a glow-in-the-dark S emblem and a detachable Velcro cape. All the dads are going, that's awesome. And so the rhythm of life for our youngest son, Silas, when he wore those pajamas is that he would wake up in the morning and one of the first things he would do is he would ask us for his cape because my wife thought that may have been a choking hazard at night and so she would remove it and he would get it back in the morning. And so I'm sitting in my living room, reading my Bible, drinking my coffee and Silas comes down, he's like three years old, he's all groggy and he goes, Dad, where's my cape? And so I take the cape And I place it on his shoulders, and no sooner do I put the cape on his shoulders, a transformation takes place. He goes from being groggy, little, sleepy Silas to Superman. And he did something that morning that he never did before, and I can tell you this, he never did it again. He began to run towards the hearth of the fireplace. He jumped up on the fireplace, pulled back his fist, and punched the brick wall. (laughs) You know what he found out in a split second? He wasn't the little man of steel. You say, why in the world would Silas punch a brick wall? Some of you are smart and you say, well, because he's your kid. No, really, the reason why Silas punched that brick wall that morning was because he really thought he was Superman. Isn't it true that we do what we do because we believe we are who we are? We do what we do because we believe we are who we are. Our identity drives our activity. We do what we do Because deep down inside, we we embrace a truth about ourselves. We embrace an identity about ourselves. And then we live out of that identity. We act out of that identity, out of that deep-rooted belief about identity. We behave or not behave in certain ways. Conversely, we can also fail to do what we should do because we forget or neglect who we are. People really do go through periods of time that they would classify as an identity crisis. Uh, There really is a medical condition caused by brain trauma called amnesia. Sometimes people forget or neglect who they are. We do what we do because we believe we are who we are. And as this relates to the subject I want to press into this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, even though this text primarily, as it's written about and preached about, centers on the identity of Jesus, in this very text, Jesus is not only concerned with his disciples understanding his true identity, he also wants his people, his apostles, 
and therefore his church to understand who they are. You know this is true. You have faithful pastors, and you've probably heard them preach messages from the same text a number of times, and it would seem like each sermon is quite different than the previous sermon, and that is because even though the scriptures mean one thing, the depth of what can be pulled out of those texts is innumerable. And so this morning, although there is, there is a place and a time for allowing this text to primarily be about celebrating and reveling in Jesus' identity as the Christ, the Son of the living God, what I want us not to miss, and this is the scope of my sermon this morning, I want us not to miss who Jesus says we are in relationship to him. And I want us to see how embracing our identity as Jesus describes it in this text helps us, to play, helps us to play the critical role he wants us to play in his unstoppable mission to build his church. And so I don't want you to forget or to neglect what Jesus says about you, Cornerstone Church, about you, elders of Cornerstone Church, in this very familiar and glorious text of Scripture. And that's why I want to show you from this text this morning this big idea, and it's this. This is humbling. This is amazing. But my brothers and sisters, this is reality. We are Christ's means to accomplish his unstoppable plan to build his church. We are Christ's means to accomplish his unstoppable plan to build his church. In order to show you how this truth rises from the text, let me first give an overview of the text itself. I want to do this briefly, but it's very important Jesus and the 12 are in Gentile, in Gentile territory, Caesarea Philippi. It was, a, it was a city that was named after Caesar Augustus, and there was this ornate marble temple there that was built by King Herod to honor himself as the greatest king. And so in this city that had a temple and a monument built to honor what Herod built, Jesus is going to give a promise of what he will build forever. And so here in this moment, they are experiencing a rare break in the action. Up until this point, Jesus is on the move. Jesus is on mission. His disciples are with him. He is teaching in the synagogues. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing every disease and every affliction everywhere he goes. But at this moment, there's a pause. At this moment, no one's coming to him for help. At this moment, no one is asking him a question. In fact, he's going to ask the question. In this moment that we are looking at this morning in Matthew's gospel, it, it actually functions in the scope of Matthew's whole gospel as a significant 
literary transition in this gospel. Um, Starting in verse 21, the pace of this gospel is going to pick up drastically. And as the momentum of the gospel shifts from the work that Jesus has been doing with his disciples, the, the focus is going to shift now to what he is commissioning his apostles to do, and then what he ultimately commissions the whole church to do at the very end of this gospel when he says, go and make disciples of the nations. And so from this point forward, Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem, moving to the moment of his greatest missional moment on the earth during his incarnation where he willingly gives his life to die as a substitute for our sins on the cross and then gloriously rises from the dead. But this is a transition in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Concerning this transition, Theologian T.H. Robinson notes the following. Here, we reach the crises, the turning point in the ministry of Jesus. He knew what lay before him. He knew because he planned the future with his own death in Jerusalem. He had, therefore, to secure some representatives who he could leave behind to carry on his work. Jesus would be ascending, but there was still work to do. And so what I believe this means is that here at this turning point in verses 16 through 21, we have Jesus getting his apostles ready to be the means through which they will continue the work that he began, the work of building his church and advancing his gospel. And these apostles will not do this work alone. These apostles will lead the church in doing the work of mission and building up the church until Jesus returns and makes all things new. And so what we see at this particular paragraph, in this particular paragraph in Matthew's gospel, is Jesus setting the stage for what is to come, for that moment in time that we still remain in as the church of Christ. That moment where we are doing, we are continuing the work he's called us to do, in building his church until he returns and makes everything new. So with that as the background, with that as understanding the literary moment in Matthew's gospel, I believe this sets us up now for me to unpack this truth, that we are the means through which Jesus builds his church. So the question I want to answer as we work through this text this morning is this. What kind of people does Jesus use to build his church? I believe they are identified in this text at least in four ways. Let me give them to you up front because I tend to kind of get going. And so I want you to know the map before we journey along the way. What kind of people does Jesus use to build his church? First, people who are gripped by the gospel. People who, second, humbly believe that God uses people like us. Third, people who expectantly believe that God works through our work. And then fourth, people who amazingly believe that God's mission cannot be stopped. 
So what kind of people does Jesus use to build his church? First, people who are gripped by the gospel. In verse 13, Jesus takes this break in the action to ask the 12 a question, who do people say that I am? And the answers are all over the all-star prophet map. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. In other words, someone really important. You know this, prophets were important. Prophets played a critical role in redemptive history. Prophets received authoritative revelation from God and spoke on his behalf. They told the people what God wanted them to hear. The mind of God was revealed through prophets. They spoke on God's behalf. So for people to say Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist, basically they're saying, Jesus, people are saying you're really important. Now, Jesus asked them a more important question in verse 15. But who do you say that I am? Like Jesus saying, all right, you've told me how others identify me. How do you identify me? As a side note, this is the most important question for each and every one of you to answer in this room this morning. Who do you believe Jesus is? The word you, who do you say that I am is plural. So the question is addressed to all of the apostles. In verse 16, Peter, of course, volunteers to speak on behalf of everybody else. Peter is that guy. You ask us a question, I will answer. And so Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, the crowd is partially right. You are important, but we believe you are the most important. Supremely important. You are the Messiah. You are God's divine son. Notice what has classically been referred to as the great confession signifies two Amazing realities about the identity and mission of Jesus. First, that Jesus is the Christ. You know this. You're taught well. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title that refers to Jesus as the most highly anticipated figure in all of redemptive history. He is the Messiah the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Not just a prophet, not just a priest, not just a king, the perfect trifecta, the leader of leaders, the one God's people need all wrapped into one, the rescuer, the ruler, the restorer, that's the Messiah. The word that would be used to take all those things and put them in the one is Messiah. And Peter is saying, Jesus, that's who you are. We're not waiting for anyone else. We're not anticipating another. You're it. You're the Christ. And then he says that you are the son of the living God. Now, there's much packed into this title, and 
Much could be said and much has been written and there are many cross-references, especially in the prophetic book of Daniel that we could go to to unpack this reality of what it means for Jesus to be the son of the living God. But here's the main important thing for us to, to realize this morning. It's this, that Jesus was not just a prophet, priest, king. He was the God-man, prophet, priest, king. He is the divine son of God, highlighting his deity. So you put all of this together in this simple confession. The reason why this is referred to as the great confession, because the most significant things that need to be said about Jesus are said right here in this sentence, that this is the good news, that Jesus is the Christ the one sent by the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit to be our rescuer, ruler, and restorer who would live the life we could not live, die the death we deserve to die, and rise from the dead and reign over the entire cosmos as Lord of all. We call that gospel. Leon Morris notes, it may not be easy to understand precisely what Peter thought the anointed one would be and do. But he was certainly giving voice to an exalted view of Jesus. He could not have ascribed a higher place to him. That's the point. In this confession, Peter could not be saying something greater, nothing grander than what he's saying about Jesus at this moment. He is saying, you are the most important figure in heaven and on earth. You are the Christ. And so here's the bottom line. When Peter has this moment, his heart is so gripped by the identity and mission of Jesus when put on the spot, when asked the question, what comes out is a confession that says, Jesus, there is no one like you. You're it. So these apostles, as Peter speaks on their behalf, are gripped by the good news of who Jesus is, what he was sent to do, and that there is no one, absolutely no one, more important than Jesus. So in terms of where we're driving in this particular sermon, what kind of person does God use? What kind of people, what kind of church does God use to be his means through which he accomplishes his unstoppable plan to build the church. Here's where we start. We start right here. We start with people. We start with a church that is gripped by the gospel. A church, a leadership, families, individual disciples who are gripped by the identity and the mission of Jesus. Are you gripped by his identity? Do you, are you gripped by the reality that there's no one like Jesus? That there's no one else to wait for? He is it. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is your rescuer, your ruler, your restorer. Are you gripped by the reality that you're no longer waiting, that you're on the receiving end of the long-awaited promise of God? Are you gripped by that? We heard a prophetic word this morning that kind of zeroed in on the reality that God's grace is unfading. Maybe this morning, 
You needed to hear that word to be reminded that the good news about who Jesus is should never fade. He is who he is, who Peter confessed him to be on behalf of the apostles, is exactly who he was on that day, is exactly who he is today. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Church, can we be gripped by this reality in a a renewed way this morning that there is no one like Jesus? Not only gripped by his identity, but gripped by his accomplishments, Are you still amazed and gripped by the reality that God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to do for you what you could not do for yourself? That he lived the life you could not live, died the death you deserve to die, and he was raised from the dead so that when you turned from your sins and trusted in him, you were forgiven all your sin. You were delivered from all your guilt and all of your shame was covered and you have now been blessed as God's son, God's daughter, now and forever. In Jesus, you are justified. In Jesus, you are redeemed. In Jesus, you are reconciled. In Jesus, you are, you are, a, you are adopted as a blessed son and daughter of God forever. Are you still gripped by that gospel? These are the kinds of people that Jesus uses as the means by which he builds his church people who are gripped by the identity, supremacy, and unique accomplishments of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So these are the kinds of people that Jesus uses to build his church and to accomplish his mission. People who are gripped by the gospel. Second, people who who humbly believe that God uses people like us. Notice Jesus' response to Peter's confession in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus' response to Peter's confession concerning Christ's identity is a declaration of Peter's identity. Let me tell you who you are. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And so the age-old question that has been debated for just about 2,000 years is this. Who or what is the rock? Is the rock Jesus? You remember that old song in Sunday school? Jesus is the rock of my salvation. His banner over me is love. Jesus is the rock, right? Peter, his name in in Greek, Petros, means pebble. And so Peter, this is a a statement of of comparison, right? Peter is a pebble. Jesus is the rock. And Jesus is saying, I'm the rock. You're the pebble. The church is going to be built on me. Is the rock maybe Peter? Peter exclusively. Is Jesus anointing Peter as the first pope? Nope. Peter, you are uniquely the rock, and on you uniquely I am going to build my church. Or is it Peter as a representative of the apostles? He's speaking on behalf of the twelve. The question, who do you say that I am, was directed to the twelve. Peter answers on behalf of the twelve. So naturally, Jesus' response to the twelve will be to Peter, who was answering for them. Is he speaking to Peter as a representative of the apostles? Or is the rock Peter's confession? 
Is Jesus speaking of the proclamation of the gospel that was encapsulated in Peter's apostolic confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So here is the answer. With the exception of Peter being the pope, the answer is yes. I believe the rock upon which Christ will build his church is the gospel Peter is confessing as a representative leader of the church. Christ will build his church through leaders who proclaim the gospel and equip God's people to proclaim the gospel as the means through which Christ builds his church. And this is exactly what happens in the book of Acts. Fast forward to the day of Pentecost, there are 120 people praying in the upper room, men and women praying, waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall upon them. God fills them all with the Holy Spirit. And then all of the disciples, the men and the women, they go out into the streets of Jerusalem and they start telling people the good news about Jesus. And then Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel. And the result is that 3,000 people are awakened to faith in Jesus and baptized, and the Jerusalem church is planted. And here's what we see. Jesus calls gifted leaders to lead the church on gospel mission, and when God blesses it, the church is built. This is how God began to build his church on the day of Pentecost, and that is how God continues to build his church today. Gifted leaders are called to lead the church on mission with the gospel. And when God blesses those efforts, he builds his church. Further evidence. It was actually prayed. It was mentioned. It was in the vows um, that, were, that, were, that ben was asked, Benjamin was asked to, to say a yes to. Ephesians 4. And he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of ministry for the building up of the church. This was the, this was the moment, this was the narratival moment that that principle was expressed for the first time that what we see in this section of Matthew's gospel is then principalized and taught as a proposition by the apostle Paul in Ephesians 4. Gifted leaders equip the church to go forth on gospel mission and build the church. We are God's means through which he builds his church. And so framing today and this holy and happy moment in connection with this reality, here is what God is doing. Here's what Jesus has done for you, Cornerstone Church. He has gifted you with another shepherd teacher to help equip you to do the work of mission as the means through which Christ will build his church. And so now you have Daniel and John, and Mike, and Benjamin, who will work together by the grace of God, according to the gifts that have been given them to Christ, to equip you with them 
to be the means through which Christ not only builds this church, not only continues to make this a holy and happy and healthy place, not only, not only a, an outpost of God's kingdom here in Apex and the triangle, but God is equipping you through them so that you can represent Jesus where you live, where you work, where you do life, and where you may end up going next if God leads you anywhere else. They are a gift to equip you to participate in Christ's unstoppable mission to build his church. Is that not humbling? Is it not humbling to know that the God of the universe, the Christ of the cosmos, has chosen to do his work through his people? My brothers and sisters, let's go home on this Lord's Day with fresh faith for this. God chooses to use us as the means through which he gets his work done on earth as he has determined in heaven. Third, not only people who humbly believe that God uses people like us, but also people who expectantly believe that God works through our work. It's important to believe that God uses people like us, but it's also important to know how God uses us. And here's what I think God is showing us in this text. God supernaturally works through our ordinary work. Look at how Jesus explains to Peter the reason why he understands the true identity of Christ in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, this, this amazing truth not, is not only about how an individual comes to faith in the true identity and significance of Jesus, it's also an amazing statement about how God works through our work in the mission of making much of Jesus. Think about it. Ask a Sunday school question, because this is the answer you normally get in Sunday school from kids. Who was proclaiming the gospel to Peter? Jesus, very good, right answer. Jesus was proclaiming the gospel to Peter. In fact, Jesus was proclaiming the gospel to, in every town, in every city, in every village. And, and the apostles were hearing it over and over and over again. So Jesus is teaching. Jesus is proclaiming. Jesus is ministering through his words and deeds. Now remember, he is the God-man. He has been made flesh and blood. Second question. Don't get this answer wrong, because it's not the same. Who revealed the significance of those words and deeds, causing Peter to believe them? Ah, you have the right answer for us right now, but the answer in the text is who? The Father. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now, for those of you who said the Holy Spirit, you get half credit. Because after the day of Pentecost, that's the right answer. The Father poured out the Spirit in Jesus' name. 
But Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter did not come to faith in Christ by simply figuring this out himself, simply because he heard the gospel proclaimed by Jesus with his physical ears. The Father opened his heart through the words and deeds of Jesus. Now let me just say this. This is Trinitarian deep waters. This is Trinitarian mystery stuff. But the Father is working through Jesus' work to make his proclamation of the gospel efficacious. Is that not astounding? It's mysterious, but it's also encouraging as we participate in God's work to build his church, as we do the things prescribed in scripture as the means by which he builds his church and advances his gospel. We have the good news that God works through our work to get it done. It's like David said in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain who build it. Wait a minute, David, who does the work? God or us? The answer Yes, God works through our work to build. It's like what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Wait a minute, Paul, who does the work, God or us? The answer, yes, God works through our work. And this is what I think Jesus has in view when he says to his disciples, go and make disciples of the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe everything I commanded you, and wait a minute, you're not by yourself. I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, don't envision the mission as God kind of kicking us out of the nest like a mother, like a mother bird kicks the, the baby bird out and just, just start flying. You'll get it. <laughs> and we just flap and flap and flap and hopefully we don't crash. No, Jesus says, I'm sending you. There's work to do, but I'm going to work through your work and I will be with you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying it's going to take a lot of work to do the mission. It's going to take a lot of work to build the church. Ask your pastors. It takes a lot of work to build the church. Ask the volunteers around here that make everything happen. It takes a lot of work to, do, to, to gather together as the saints and to worship and to, and to, to, to hear God's word and to, to be together in community and to go out and share the gospel and to show love through gospel compassion and mercy. It takes a lot of work to do all that, doesn't it? But we do not work alone. God works through our work with us, beside us within us. I got some amazing tickets to take my son Pace into a Phillies game back when he was four years old. And I remember this particular Phillies game because we've been to a lot of them. is because it was a special promotion that after the game, kids had a chance to run around the bases. So when I asked Pace, hey, you want to run the bases? Want to run, run around the bases? He goes, no. I said, but I want to, so you are. 
So at about the end of the seventh inning, we go down into the, to the right field tunnel, and we're there lined up, all the kids with their parents, and we walk out right field, down first baseline, and then once we get to first base, the kids let go of the hands of their parents, and they get to run around the bases, and that's awesome. And so the closer we get to first base, I can tell that Payson is getting more and more nervous. He doesn't want to do this. He sees these kids go, and he does not want to do it. I'm like, Payson, what's wrong? He goes, I just, I just can't do it. I'm like, well, what if I go with you? He goes, okay. So I'm practicing my speech as I get close to the first baseline so I can tell the, so I can tell the person there who's, who's monitoring this whole situation, who's only allowing kids to run around the bases, that he's going to let this six-foot-four bearded kid run around the bases as well. <laughs> and so I say, hey, listen, my son's scared. He, he won't do this without me. Can, can I run with him? Okay, fine. And so I'm holding his hand. We start at first base. We're running. We come around second base, and all of a sudden, he just lets go of my hand, and he begins to fly around the bases, third base, home. It was an awesome experience. What made the difference? What made the difference from him not wanting to do it being afraid to do it, to actually doing it, and then thriving and enjoying doing it, it was knowing that I would be with him. And that's the good news of the work that God has called us to do. He works through our work with us. And then here's the promise that's attached to that, finally. Who are the people that God uses to participate in the work of building his church? People who amazingly believe that God's mission can't be stopped. Verse 18. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, Jesus is saying, what I intend to do through you cannot be stopped. I'm going to work through your work. I'm going to use you as the means through which I build my church. And nothing can stop it from happening. Jesus is promising that he is going to build his church. He's going to use his people to do it. He's going to work through their work to accomplish it. And nothing can stop what he intends to do. What a promise. What a promise. Now, let me be honest about something. I don't know about you, but I like being on the winning team. I'm really into competitive sports. Um, I played competitive sports throughout my entire childhood in high school and in college. And when I play, sure, I play for fun, but let me just be real. I play to win. Last night at Benjamin's reception, someone gave testimony to the fact that you would let other people win in foosball. Brother, I would never do that. Does that make me disqualified? I don't know. I try to position myself to win, not often, all the time. So I played a lot of basketball. And if you played basketball with me and you weren't that good, I would block your shot anyway. No mercy, no compassion. You'll get compassion for me when you're suffering, compassion with me when I'm counseling you, but compassion on the court, no way. I play to win. But in reality, I lose. I wish I could always be guaranteed to win, but sometimes I lose. In fact, the teams I played on, we lost a lot. 
However, Jesus is saying here, I don't lose. And get this, we are on his team. Don't you like that? Doesn't that give you faith? Shouldn't this give us confidence that in the midst of all the ups and downs of life together in the church of Jesus Christ, in the midst of all the ups and downs and the upheavals of church history, that at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, even though there may be times where it feels like the church is losing, in the end, Jesus wins. You know, there's, there's lots of debate on eschatological positions. In fact, I found myself in a very encouraging conversation yesterday with, with Brother Phil Sasser, one of my dear, beloved mentors, and, his, and a couple of his sons and his son-in-law. And we were talking about the end times. And we were talking about eschatology. But at the end of the day, when it comes to eschatology, you know what we want to say? You know what we need to say? Jesus wins! And that's not a shortcut to not figuring things out. Don't take that as the break I'm giving you. But in the end, Jesus wins. His church is built. He gets all his people. The mission is accomplished. The devil will ultimately defeat, be defeated. Death will be no more. Disease will be no more. Sin will be no more. Jesus wins. That's good news. But it's not just good news on a cosmic level. It's good news on a local level. Everything. Listen, church, I'm not just saying this. Your pastors aren't paying me to say this. I've not been bribed to say this, but I am saying this. Everything that God intends to do through, in, and through Cornerstone Church will be accomplished, and God will make sure it's accomplished, and the devil cannot stop it. God has a plan and a purpose for this church in this place. And Jesus will do exactly what he has sovereignly planned to do in you, through you, for his glory. Don't forget that. The following article appeared on the front page of the Seattle Times under the heading, Who is this man? The article writes, A man in his 50s says he woke up in Discovery Park three weeks ago with no memory of who he is or how he got to Seattle. Doctors know that he's intelligent, well-educated, and fluent in three languages, but they don't know how to help him. For now, he's known as John Doe. The blonde-haired man with the walrus mustache wandered out of Seattle's Discovery Park three weeks ago with pressed khakis, an expensive dress shirt, a blue blazer, and $600 hidden in his sock. I have so many questions. (laughs) But he was uninjured and said he was confused, lost, and frightened. This much is clear. He's fluent in English, French, and German. He possesses a professorial knowledge of European cultural history. He seems to have traveled the world, and he says he is a widower, but he says he does not know who he is, when he was born, or where he's from, and he doesn't even know if he wants to know. He goes on to say, but if you don't have an identity, it's really difficult to survive. After several interviews and medical examinations, it was concluded that he was suffering from a bizarre case of amnesia. 
he truly forgot who he was. And like he said, if you don't have an identity, it's difficult to survive. Cornerstone Fellowship Church, do not forget your identity. Do not forget who you are. If you forget your identity, it will be difficult to survive and thrive in your mission and ministry as a local church. This is who you are. This is humbling. This is exciting. This is amazing. You are Christ's means to accomplish his unstoppable plan to build his church. And if you're going to be that kind of church, be gripped by that gospel. Be humbled that God wants to use people like you. Be amazed that God works through your work and that what he plans to do in you and through you cannot be stopped. Amen? And for you, Benjamin, I was building to this, this holy, happy moment. As you have been ordained, installed to join these shepherds in shepherding this flock, I want to charge you to never get over the gospel. To be humbled that God wants to use you. Be expectant that he wants to work through your work. And then be amazed that everything that God plans to do in and through your leadership for the building of this church and the glory of the triune God cannot be stopped. And Ruth, can you remind him of that? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your faithfulness. You will build your church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we are here this morning to testify that you are building this church. You are at work in this church and you are working through this church. Would you continue to build their faith? Would you continue to keep them gripped by this grace? Help them to continue to be amazed by Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And would they be eager to be equipped by their leaders to do the work that you've called them to do for the building of the church and for the glorious advance of that gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.